You're listening to the Sydney Opera House Arty Farty Podcast. You never give up. You continue to chip away. You continue to work hard on a daily basis. And those incremental small improvements you make on a daily basis eventually is going to make the world difference for you. This talk was recorded as a live-streamed conversation. Eventually, that break moment, that break of opportunities or break of discoveries is going to happen for you. The hard work on a daily basis, the little improvements you have uh, made on an on a incremental basis, eventually it's going to become like a flood. It's going to open this incredible opportunity for you. I can guarantee you that will happen if you don't give up. Up next, Lee Swinsing. Hello, everyone. My name's Catherine, and I'm a performer and educator here at the Sydney Opera House. The Opera House stands on Benalong Point, which was known as Dubagali by its traditional owners, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. As we meet here today, I'd like to acknowledge their elders, past, present, and future. Now, we have students joining us today from all over the country and we have a very special guest. Lee Shwin Singh is one of the best-known ballet dancers in the world. He's the author of an international best-selling book, Mao's Last Dancer, which details Lee's journey as a, an, an impoverished childhood in China under the Mao Zedong Cultural Revolution, all the way to the dizzying heights of professional ballet. Since 2012, Lee has been nurturing the new generation of dancers as the artistic director of the Queensland Ballet. And in 2019, Lee was appointed an officer of the Order of Australia, which is a huge honour. And that was for, I'm going to quote here, for distinguished service to the performing arts, particularly to ballet, as a dancer and artistic director. Lee, welcome. Thank you, Catherine. It's nice to be with you. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. Now, I, we have so many students waiting, I'm sure with bated breath, to hear more about your incredible life and your career. So, so let's get started. Now, this is your 10th year as the Artistic Director of the Queensland Ballet. Can you tell us what that job entails and what you enjoy about it? Well, anything uh, to do with artistic endeavours out of the Queensland Ballet, whether it's uh, training, hiring, uh, uh, helping dancers to reach their potential, uh, training students, um, performance related, whether it's casting or uh, engaging musicians, stage crew, uh, sets, costume designers, choreographers. So anything to do with the artistic side of things, uh, I'm their boss. And <laughs> I'm, also, I'm also the one providing that artistic vision uh, for the company. So uh, it's uh, incredibly rewarding. The, the one thing I love about my job is to be able to make a difference through the beautiful art form, the beautiful performances, the wonderful programs, uh, programs we deliver to regional Queensland, whether it's uh, dance camps or performances or uh, from little toddlers to uh, have classes for adult people or for Parkinson's disease sufferers and their carers. Um, and uh, really uh, the most rewarding aspect to be able to help the young talents, the young generation of dancers to maximize, maximize their potential, to help them to become the best they can do. Mm, so you're, you're uniting everyone to make a difference in your company. Yes. So, you, you know, you live in Brisbane with your wife, Mary, who was also a prima ballerina, and you have three grown-up children. Have any of your children followed their parents into the world of ballet? Sadly, no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, but uh, two of our, our daughters have danced and learned ballet when they were younger, um, but they both did not want to pursue a professional ballet career. Our son who probably have the best physique of them all, all uh, amongst my three children. And, but he wants to have virtually nothing to do with ballet. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, he enjoys music, he enjoys theater, he loves his sports activities, um, but exactly. not ballet. Okay, well, that's all right. You can, you can use bodies for all sorts of wonderful things. <laughs> 
Uh, uh, absolutely. We are, we are perfectly fine. <laughs> now, I mentioned before that you, uh, you've, you're, you're an officer of the Order of Australia, which is a huge honour. Is it true that you've also been honoured with having a species of spider named after you? Yes, it's a little a dancing spider, which is absolutely beautiful. Uh, and it was really uh, the scientist who uh, discovered uh, this little spider in rural Queensland. Uh, were in, uh, she was inspired by watching a ballet we staged called The Midsummer Night's Dream, the costumes, because there are a lot of fairies in that ballet. And the uh, uh, the costumes of uh, that ballet was just spectacular. These tutus and all that, just incredibly colourful. Mm -hmm. So this particular spider is also very colourful, but also loves to dance. <laughs> and so this, you know, you can see this little spider dancing uh, and trying to attract a maid. And so she relate to the beautiful Miss Amonai's dream, but the performance she saw, and she said, she uh, asked me if she could uh, honor me by naming this spider after my name. How wonderful. Which was uh, incredible. Incredible. That is a, that is an incredible honour. The the spider is known as the Maritus Leishwing Singy, which is very special, and it's super cute as well. Not not big and hairy and scary like like some of our Australian spiders are. <laughs> um, now, your early life in China uh, in the nineteen sixties was very different to your life in America and and now in Australia. Can you paint a picture of what uh, your childhood was like then? Yes, I. I was born into an incredible time uh, in the Chinese history. Um, between 1958 to 1961, uh, there were widely believed uh, there were about 35 to 40 million people died of starvation disease during that time. And I was born in 1961, right into that incredibly difficult period of time in China. Uh, during my youth, we grew up with no running water, no heating, the temperature in my hometown in the wintertime could get down to somewhere between 18 to 20 degrees below zero. In Celsius. Um, that's right. Oh, so the is incredibly cold. Um, and if you leave a glass of water outside within an hour or so, the could turn into ice. Um, it snowed in, uh, hugely uh, every winter there will be snow over a meter high just dumped across the countryside um it's become a whole wide world uh, and then uh, but the worst memory was uh, the starvation we had experienced mm -hmm. during our childhood uh, there's virtually very little food to eat and there's obviously not enough warm clothes to wear um, so if you get sick you just pray to god that you will survive that ordeal. It doesn't matter how little, how light the sickness uh, was. And so for us, we really uh, lived in this incredibly difficult um, period. And uh, you probably, for your readers and for you, you probably recall my father finally told us this uh, fables. You now that you know, one particular fable is about um, this little frog going to deep well. Uh, I, I can I can recite it for you if you like, but uh, so those kind of uh, wonderful fables and stories have given us uh, hope and courage. Yes, I, I actually uh, was going to ask you about some of the fables in the story of Mao's Last Dancer, and the frog in the well is a really uh, particularly poignant uh, fable. And uh, why do you think your your dear told you that story? And what what effect did that what effect did that story have on you? Well, my my dear, as some of your readers know, uh, dear is for father. In, in uh, is the is a local uh, slang, really. Um, I it, during the winter times it was so bitterly cold. You can't go outside to play, mm. and so uh, so you basically being trapped inside. The peasants can't go to work in the fields because the fields are totally frozen. The dirt is totally frozen. You can't go down. Mm. Uh, so you can't plant anything. And so during these kind of harsh uh, moments, where, where there's not much food, 
to eat and it was so cold and you were starved. And then uh, my father would often tell these little stories to keep us am- am- uh, you know, amused and, you know, as I said, keep our hopes alive. Could, could you and tell so, us a little bit about that, that story, like what, sure. what the story is for, for, for anyone who hasn't, who hasn't got to your, to your book just yet? Sure. Uh, it's about this little frog born into a deep, dark, cold and miserable well. For all his life, he was taught the limited patch of sky, the occasional stars and moon, but mainly this dreadful cold and darkness was all life had to offer. Until one day, this land frog above above him told him there's a better and a better world to explore, to enjoy. He didn't believe it. He went to his father and said, Father, please tell me that's not true. Others don't have more than we do in life. And only then his father confessed a long-held secret of his. He told his son he had also heard there's a bigger and more beautiful world up there. But throughout his life, he had tried, tried with utter desperation, tried to escape the world he was born into. He told his son there's simply no way out for them. The land was too far away for them to ever escape. So he told him to give up hope, accept the sad fate and the miserable world they were born into. You know, the funny thing was, Catherine, perhaps along the way, um, so many children in my village or across China, my six brothers, have all heard that, that same fable. Mm. Perhaps they didn't, didn't mean much to them. It was just a fable. You know, a fable is a fable. And people just laughed uh, through it. But for me, it had just had a tremendous, most incredible impact mm. in my life, as though the seed of hope seed of curiosity had planted it deep in me and uh, this deep-seated desire of mine I, if there is a better world up there beyond my reach I want to see it I desperately want to experience it I want to fully explore it I want to take whatever the opportunity come my way to get that opportunity, to get the chance to see a bigger and better world, to give me a better opportunity to do to live my life. And speaking of, um, you know, you've you've talked about the terrible food shortage and uh, the seeds that that were planted in you. One of the things that really struck me in the book was that despite the the lack of food, your family around meal times were constantly pushing food to each other. Your, your mother, your Niang, would try and give her share to your dear, your father, and he would try and give his share to you and your brothers. And the, before you left to go and study in Beijing, your brothers were trying to give you their dumplings. Like, there's such a, a spirit of sacrifice for one another. Yeah. What seeds did your, did your family life and your parents in particular plant in you for your future? Yeah, that is uh, the... Those uh, selflessness, Mm. this love um, and care for each other, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, really have uh, those values, um, you know, was deep uh, uh, instilled in us, in all of us. So just seeing what hard work, what suffering, what sacrifice, what love, my parents have given their seven boys. Uh, as you know, I'm the sixth of seven. Uh, it was truly, you know, that's what you grew up with. Because as I said, my parents would starve themselves to allow their children have an extra mouthful to eat before we went to sleep. So they often said, we're not hungry, you go ahead and eat. But we knew they are being starved all day long as well. So everybody basically just too afraid to move their pair of chopsticks to start eating because we want our parents to eat more so they have the strength to work so we won't all die of starvation if they got sick. So is that kind of, uh, you know, tough situation have taught you a lot of sacred values like this? Absolutely. Yes, the, the stakes were incredibly high for your family and I suppose by 
that deep care for one another, you, you were able to survive against the odds because some of the things you're describing are so far removed from my own childhood. Um, I can't imagine having to survive. I mean, I can imagine it, but the reality of surviving... Uh, that was the only... Like that. You were absolutely, you were only you were absolutely right. That's the only way we could have survived, is to bond together between a family and between the village, mm -hmm. and uh, everybody end up helping each other. So if you are just totally desperate... Uh, like I can't remember how many times my, my mother will bear her pride knocking on doors of neighbours to borrow food to get us by mm. because there's nothing for her to cook. Mm. It's, uh, it's, it's an, incredible, uh, an incredible spirit and quality to, to have to, yeah. to survive and, that. Yeah, and sometimes beggars will be knocking on our door even though we were so desperate but my mother and my father always shared what we had. Mm, that, that's wonderful. That's, that's just such an incredible um, community to, be, to grow up a part of in, in adversity. Yeah. Uh, so you, you, you grew up under the uh, Cultural Revolution, which... Uh, could you tell us a little bit about Mao Zedong and what the Cultural Revolution was about well, I can tell you what Mao Zedong was to me when I grew up as That's, a child. Yes. And she, you know, as soon as you are born, uh, you were given a precious gift of Mao's little red book of that size. And that will be placed on your bedside table when you grow up. And uh, as soon as you, you wake up, you have to put that little book in your pocket, carry with you all the time and uh, you, you are asked to memorize every word, every sentence, um, every passage. And then that was really truly what your Bible in life. And we were taught to sing songs. The songs we were taught to sing uh, as a child, they were all we love you, Chairman Mao kind of songs. So it's total brainwash. And um, so Mao's uh, communist political ideology uh, theories they were really, um, you know, our the words we live by, and Mao's little red book was our Bible in life. So growing up, Mao was our God, and we sing songs like, "In the sunrise from the east, the sun is Chairman Mao." So he he's our rain, he's our food, he's a source of our happiness. So those are just. You know, that's, those are the, the words and we just all so deeply, inst you know, penetrated into our every being. Um, so, uh, so as a young uh, person growing up, I naturally become a little red guard. Uh, at first, you wear these little scarves around your neck. And then when you get slightly older, become a teenager, you wear this uh, a little uh, armband, red armband. And basically, so you, your entire life was to live, to die, to serve uh, Mao's communist political uh, ideology. Mm. And so Mao, in our, in our mind, is, is this figure which is absolutely, if Mao have certainly, Mao's people said, we want you to jump into a deep well to kill yourself, I would have done it without question as a, as a youth. Mm. Yes. Um, so... Yeah, against that type, when I grew up, I witnessed these incredible scenes of cultural revolution, which through the eyes and experiences of my older brothers. As I said, I, I was the sixth in, in line. So the older brothers would go out deep into the nights on the weekends during the day, uh, bright daylights to, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, have this massive political rallies where not many people went to work. They would dig in so deep into the landlords, factory owners' homes, thinking they're going to dig, finding gold and uh, hidden treasures that they had, um, you know, suppressed, uh, ill-gotten from suppressing uh, people, taking advantage of peasants and villagers and all that. So there are a lot of artworks, museums, galleries, uh, uh, art treasures uh, being burned, destroyed, uh, churches and Buddhist temples all being leveled. So there's massive destruction 
and and that whole cultural revolution was to get rid of the anything that's aged or old uh, to build everything new. Mm-hmm. And and during that time, you were ta- you were taught that you had the best of everything, and and you were incredibly lucky to live the way you were living. That the rest of the world had nothing on on what you had, which, which we did was very little. Yeah, we grew up led to believe, uh, as as I said, every piece of literature, every radio of stories you are hearing is just how lucky we are living in Mao's China. How uh, privileged, how what, what a divine, uh, prosperous life styles we live in compared to the uh, the rest of the world, and especially the Western world. Mm-hmm. Now, Chairman Mao had a wife, Madame Mao, and she she wanted to establish a dance academy in Beijing, and so she sent out representatives to go and talent scout across across the whole of China and some of those representatives were brought into your classroom and they walked around and they pointed out one girl that they would they would go away and audition and they almost walked out but your your classroom teacher was very brave and very forward and stopped them pointed to you and said what about him and they said okay come along for the audition what do you think what qualities do you think she saw in you to to change your fate in such a in such an amazing way. Mm. I know uh, it is one of these turning moments in my life, probably the turning moment in my life. Um, Madame Mao uh, Jiang Qing uh, was uh, the fourth, I think, the fourth wife of Mao's, and she was a she was a former actress, uh, and uh, so she was part of the Gang of Four. Um, and uh, uh, which was largely responsible for the atrocities committed during the Cultural Revolution. Because the Cultural Revolution, what has really destroyed is the arts and culture and the artists and uh, anybody who are really educated, they want silence. So uh, Madame Mao had a secret passion, which was her passion for ballet and the classical music, actually. So, so uh, she uh, was in charge of the cultural scene at the time. So it was in the heart of the Cultural Revolution. She went to see uh, one of the uh, performances down by the National Ballet of China. And of course, a lot of dancers on stage were, couldn't really dance. They were old and, de- and really depreciated. Uh, de- uh, de- uh, de- and uh, so uh, she turned around, she said, why can't you put on some better dancers? And this amount of mail, uh, the Beijing Dance Academy has been closed, shut. Right during the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. She said, well, can we open them again? So that's how they reopened the re-audition. So there was a gap um, you know, between the last people, group of people being auditioned then mine, which started in 1972. And so when she sent these cultural uh, advisors from the Beijing Dance Academy teachers to looking for talents, and they came to our village. Because the Communist uh, China, the Communist Party, Mao's Communist Party, they won the war against the Nationalist Party, which led by Shanghai Czech, who eventually fled to Taiwan, uh, was based on, he, re, he relied on three classes of people. The peasants, the factory workers, the workers, and the, uh, the Red Army. People. So then when he rose to power, he, he wanted to reward these three classes um, of, uh, of citizens and their children. So then they went to the countryside naturally but because the peasants. And when they walked in there, and we knew nothing about ballet because ballet was never part of our lives. So to ask your question, uh, why was such a magical moment? And, uh, you know, yes, as these four people asked to sing We Love You, Chairman, sound, uh, Chairman Mao songs. As they walk on the aisles, they select one girl. Just as they're about to leave the room, my class teacher stopped the last gentleman from leaving and said, excuse me, sir, what about that one? And she was pointing at me. Mm. And, and strangely, when I was writing my autobiography in 2000, I, when I was writing to that point, uh, is something really shocked me. I thought if it wasn't for that teacher, teacher Sam, 
I would not be here. I would not be where I am. I would not have the kind of global, rewarding artistic experiences, which give me some of the most profound experiences in my life and allow me the chance now to make a difference to our society through Queensland Ballet. So I track her this teacher down. I asked her, called her up, said, teacher son, could you please tell me why did you single me out that day? And she thought about it and then she said, Lee, for all these years I wondered, I still don't know. Wow. So it's just one of these incredible, uh, you know, uh, circumstances or just I call it magical uh, divine moment in my life. And then my life is completely transformed because this one moment that teacher still didn't know why she pointed me out. That's just, that is just incredible. It is, it is like a divine moment, isn't it? Somebody just tapped her on the shoulder and, and, her, and she just changed your whole course. Now, you, that, you were one of the successful uh, auditionees for the, for the Beijing Dance Academy out of millions of children. And once you were there, you trained from 5.30 in the morning through to 9pm at night. So that's over 15 hours a day. And the training was, was very brutal and rigorous. Uh, what did your early ballet training teach you about resilience and, and, and discipline? Oh, it was uh, absolutely fundamental to my success. Um, because of that toughness and you either sunk or swing, they virtually just threw you into the deep end. Mm. And as I said to you, I didn't know what ballet was. And so for me, the first couple of years, I was dreadful. I was terrible. I hated ballet with passion. And I was unmotivated. I, didn't, I was lazy. Uh, and uh, I was just, all I was interested in is to make mischief uh, <laughs> and make people laugh. I was a clown. But then uh, this wonderful teacher uh, helped me to discover my true passion for ballet. Once I discovered my, my passion, that's when I was really, really willing to work hard. And then that's when I was willing to bear the pain, to go through that pain threshold. I was willing to strap heavy sandbags on both of my ankles, hop one leg up and down on four levels of stairs, morning after morning, I hop like mad. I, would, I was willing to turn under the candlelight in front of the candlelight because I was, as a child, I had experienced this most horrific motion sickness. I can't turn without feeling I was going to really throw my guts up. Oh, wow. And so, so, uh, so eventually it is that resilience. It is that determination, tenacity, and the attitude of never give up. Um, and a lot of work, huge amount of work ethic involved. Mm. And eventually from the laughing stock of the entire academy on the verge being fired, and I graduated at the, at the top of my class, while it considered the best dancer China had ever produced. Mm. It's precisely the, that resilience that I relied on. It, it's really interesting to hear someone who has gone on to such phenomenal success talk about times in their lives where they haven't felt up to scratch or they've not felt good enough and they've, they've maybe been a laughing stock. Do you think uh, sharing that uh, within, within our stories or within your story is important? I hope so. Yes, I believe so. Mm. Uh, because I often getting uh, such inspiration from reading others' books or watching a true life story movie or documentary uh, or even just simply a meeting somebody inspirational. And I think real life stories uh, are absolutely powerful. And, you know, we, we live in a world that we are interconnected somehow. So when, uh, you know, there's so much of it, uh, probably some negative influences that or your own insecurities tend to often scare you, talking you out of your pursuit of your wild or courageous dreams. Mm -hmm. And so whatever the positivities, whatever the inspirations you can gain from others, it is all the better. It will help you along your journey to achieve great success. So learning about other people's stories, it is one thing will help you to make your life a more rewarding, a more successful one.
Yes, I, I agree. I think uh, so. Sharing sharing our stories, sharing our experiences, we we get to grow along with the teller of the story. Yeah, and I never, I nearly didn't want to share my story. Um, uh, in fact, I, uh, I well, after my defection in America, as you know, I nearly lost my life. Um, Hollywood offered me three films and. Uh, wonderful writers have chased after me, but I always said no throughout my life. And I, I rather felt uh, uh, was self-indulgent to run my story, to, to share my story you know, with the world, because I really felt so many people in the world have much more exciting, more inspiring stories than mine, until I uh, went to a seaside place called Lawn uh, near Melbourne, uh, with several other families and friends. In that group, there's a famous Australian-based children's store and a storyteller and writer, illustrator, Graham Bays. And he heard my story that night and he encouraged me to write my story. That night, I automatically said, no, 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 Graham, I don't think I want to write my story. And he said, Lee, don't think the story, sharing your story is for you to self-promoting. He said, no, it's really, it's for others is for others to, to uh, be able to gain that courage and hope, um, you know, in their lives mm. by, by hearing your experiences. So that was the reason I wrote my story, actually. And when you began writing that story, how, what was your process? How did, you, how did you start? And what were the challenges in writing your own story? Well, I think probably uh, is one of the most difficult things, <laughs> I, most foolish, most foolish thing I've ever agreed to do in my life. Uh, I'm very glad you did, you, Lee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as you know, I mean, my really my first English expression I learned from my Chinese and English dictionary before I went to America was "Oh dear me." Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I didn't start to learn English until when I was 18. So for me, English as my second language was incredibly challenging to, to write mm. in English of, of my life story. So what I did was uh, after um, that weekend with Grand Base, and I uh, went to my office the following weekend. By that time, I've already become a successful stockbroker and uh, made a successful career transition from dance into finances. Mm. And then I wrote eight pages worth of summary of my life uh, in bullet points. And uh, probably in, looking back, I still got these eight pages in, in perfect English. Uh, and uh, I begged um, all the highlights of my, of my life. And uh, I begged Graham, I said, Graham, um, can you look at Oprah? Because he had promised me uh, that he would pass this on to the publishing director of Penguin Australia mm. and uh, his, his longtime publisher. And then I begged him, I said, before you pass this on, can you please help me to correct my grammar, <laughs> English grammar? And he sent an uh, email back to me immediately. He said, well, Lee, I will not change a single word because there's such power and raw emotions in your eight pages. And he said, this is what the readers will be so touched, moved by. Mm. And so he sent that unchanged, sent to Penguin. And, and then before I knew it, there were three international publishers were after my story again. And this time I really was determined to share my story. So I, during, during, the, during the course of uh, um, a year and a half, uh, I wrote 680,000 words and all use my free, free time, evenings, weekends, holiday times. And then eventually uh, what you read in the original publication is only 160,000 words. And then only 160,000 words. And then, of course, the, the latest edition has, or the 2009 edition of Mao's Last Dancer has, has uh, a few extra three, chapters. Three more chapters. That's right. Yeah. Now, Mao's Last Dancer uh, has done phenomenally well. It's sold over 400,000 copies in over 20 countries. And uh, it, it's also available in a few other... Uh, editions, I suppose, in, in that it, there's a young reader's edition and there's also a beautiful picture book called The Peasant Prince, which was illustrated by Anne Spud Villers. 
Uh, so yeah. that you've, you've, your story has been told through a, a number of mediums and also the 2009 film directed by Bruce Beresford. Uh, in, your, in your book, you, um, you, do, you talk about your, your teachers and, and you, you mentioned that it was a very uh, a particular teacher that, that uh, impacted you. What was it about... Was it a teacher Zhao? Is that... Am I saying his name correctly? Xiao. 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 Yeah. Uh, now, he gave you an analogy of a, a mango to help you improve your pirouettes. How, how is the analogy... Um, how does the analogy of eating a mango apply to your, to your practice in ballet? And how sure. can students use that analogy in life? Sure. Let me just give you a bit of a context mm. about the mango story. Uh, I, as I said earlier, I... I there was such fear for me to do pirouettes um, because I can't, uh, as a child, I can't even get on a bicycle without really wanting to throw up. So anything moved, I just felt just nauseous. I just become so nauseous. And uh, so imagine ballerinas standing on five little toes, keep on spinning uh, in a, you know, incredible speed. Uh, and uh, particularly when you're on stage, this darkness around you, and, and you uh, basically you have to really have an incredible sense of balance uh, and a, a sense of emotions. So for me, before I even start turning, I was just feeling totally defeated. And then, uh, but once I fell in love with ballet, I knew this is one of the skill sets I have to master. So I was determined to, to make the breakthrough. So that's why I went through such extreme measures at uh, turning under the candlelight and all that. So one, one uh, um, summer holiday, uh, everybody went home to visit their parents, even though I miss my parents and six brothers desperately. But I want to stay back to really conquer my periods, um, make, making breakthroughs. Um, and uh, so I'll be kept spinning. It was so hot, there's no air conditioning. Um, uh, I'll, I'll be my sweat will be spreading, just spinning off, uh, covering the wet the floor, the wood floor. And uh, one day I was so frustrated. Nothing. Every time I start doing pirates, I would fall over and trying to get up, fall over. And then suddenly this head popped in, appearing from the window, glass window. It was Tisha Shell. So he came back to check on my progress. He knew I was staying back. And he so how frustrated I was, he came in trying to help. The more he tried to help, the worse it got. And it's just one, one of these days, nothing I did worked. Uh, and then he certainly said, said something was so I was shocked. He said, Lee, let's stop. He said, let's take a break and let's have a chat. So then I thought he was continuing to discuss, trying to take my purest apart to analyze it. He, totally changed the subject. He said, have you ever heard of this fruit, sweet, golden-looking fruit called mango? And the only time I ever heard of this mango uh, fruit was supposed to be Chairman Mao's favorite fruit. Nowhere to be seen in China. Uh, and uh, then he went on to describe just what uh, incredible magical fruit that is. The sweetest, the most unique taste and the sweetest smell and the most glorious golden color uh, and the unique shape and everything. And then uh, he said there's this big nut as formed the heart of the, uh, of the um, fruit. And then he said, Lee, what would you do if I give you one? But then I was just so watery in my <laughs> mouth, I wanted to eat it. And of course, there, without hesitation, I said, eat it. But he said, why? If this is the only time in your life you will ever see, feel, and taste, admire a fruit like this, wouldn't you first really feel the weight, smell it, enjoy the incredible rich golden color, and delicately carve it layer upon layer? I dare you to taste the skin, even the nut. Ultimately, then you can enjoy the satisfaction tasting of the pulp. And he basically, from that, this wonderful story, 
he tried to teach me to enjoy process, enjoy the process. And uh, I think to me, I relate to as to really getting pleasure working through the process of the pirouettes. And if he, uh, furthermore, he challenged it. So he said, what if I give you a perfect pirouette? If I give you, you can do, every time you can do 10 pirouettes, every time you do it, he said, if it was given to you, not through your hard work, through your sweat, through the defeat, come back from the defeat, de making these incredible new discoveries, would that mean anything to you? So to me, the answer is no. If something's given to you without hard work, without dedication, uh, without go through this interesting discovery process, then it will not mean very much to me at all. Mm. At least maybe something given to you, you could be lost very easily. That's what we say in the Bali world. If you have discovered something through somebody threw at you on your lap without working through the process of refining, re-refining, and then discovery, then you may never be able to retain it. Mm. So, so for me, it is same thing in life. What is the sweetest taste of success is something you work through so hard mm. in, in ob uh, really obtaining it yeah. as a result of the hard work. And enjoy the process is so important in truly enjoy the fruit of your success at the end of it. Mm. That's, that's a very powerful analogy and metaphor for, for success. Yeah. Don't just get the mango in your belly. Really focus on each, each task that takes to eat the mango. That's, uh, you can apply that to everything in life, really. Uh, Nelly, you, you had... You've had an incredible journey. You you went on to you you were selected to go over to Houston in Texas and and study with the Houston Ballet. And while you were in America, you you decided that to reach your potential as a dancer and to to really have freedom, you needed to stay in the US. And I know that, uh, and our readers will know that your the repercussions for that were huge for you. Um, you were detained against your will in the the Chinese consulate in Houston. There were repercussions for your family, and you didn't get to see your family for a very long time. Uh, but during your your time in America, you, you well, you danced with Houston Ballet for sixteen years in in some leading in leading roles as a principal dancer, and you've danced. On, on every prestigious stage across the world and and also the Australian ballet. You've, you've danced right here in the Sydney Opera House. Uh, do, do, you have a, do you have a favourite role that you've danced, something that's taken you to the pinnacle of your craft? I would have to say uh, it's very difficult to, to choose one role. If I have to choose one, it would have to be Romeo and Juliet. Ah. I love the story. And uh, I, oh, I, uh, you know, one of my first true, uh, you know, treasure stories to read when I when, when my reading uh, skills have improved uh, was Shakespeare, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Um, it was then uh, subsequently I was able to dance that role. It was specially created for for me by my director Ben Stevenson in Houston and it was it was, before then I loved the prince in Swan Lake, I loved the prince in Cinderella, etc. But uh, Romeo and Juliet was really my absolute favourite. Mm. Now I'm sure we have um, many students here today who have huge dreams and huge aspirations for their futures and I'd like to ask you just a couple of questions uh, around, around that. Now I would like to ask you uh, about injury in dance. Many many young dancers and and athletes uh, have to deal with injury along along that road over time. How do you? What advice would you give to young young dancers and athletes in managing their injuries and managing work while injured? Yes, that's a really good question because injuries is really a big part of a dancer's uh, um, career. And uh, you either deal deal with it in the right way, uh, or you can let that injury stop you from improving uh, continued progress in your careers. Uh, my uh, the biggest learning 
um, lessons and experience for me was when you were being sidelined uh, because of injuries, and I had a quite a few severe injuries. One of them was uh, uh, herniated two discs in my lower back uh, when I had took this terrible fall on the Bolshoi stage uh, in my last international ballet competition. I thought my career was going to be finished. I was laying in bed rest for three months without can't get up, only was able to get up and go to the bathroom, take a shower. And uh, um, so those are the moments, I believe, you got to work on your mind mm -hmm. because to be a, a world-class dancer or a dancer of any standard, you got to work both physically and mentally and also artistically, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so the mental strength, the mental resilience is far more important than anything else, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And you can have the best facility, you can have a very lucky career with, with uh, very few injuries, um, and uh, you can get all the leading roles and all that. Without that mental resilience, often you falter. Mm -hmm. You falter because of nerves, or you falter because there's uh, uh, hangling, um, you know, injuries, niggling injuries, uh, or negativities, or circumstances, or maybe sometimes simply the light, if the lighting's not quite right on stage, it just affects you, anything could affect you. So when you have that mental strength, the resilience, and you have, um, you know, uh, really uh, over the challenges, difficulties you have experienced to gain this resilience as a result or part, form part of your experiences, they are they become invaluable. So for me, when I get injured, I often really try to use this downtime, which is a forced downtime, to the best of my ability. So I would sit there, for example, watching others practice, watching them doing class or rehearsals or performing. I would just, with my mindset, is I'm going to go there to learn. Mm. I'm going to go there, watch the class, not as a dancer, but as a director, as a choreographer, as a teacher and coach. So I put myself in a whole different position mm. than being a, being, a, being a dancer. I can't tell you how much I learned, how invaluable those learning experiences were, even though I was forced to be sidelined. Mm. And the same thing with my laying on my on the bed for three months and plus it took another more than three months to come to work myself back through these uh, herniated discs um, and uh, this the discoveries about myself the inner strength I have to master discover and find uh, and is becoming valuable for the next phase of my career made me a much more balanced better um, mindset, better folks dancer uh, as a result. Lee, just, just finally, I'd like to ask you, um, in, in what you've actually just said, we'll probably touch on this, uh, but for the students who do have, do have big aspirations and big dreams, uh, but feel that their obstacles and the, the complications in their life are just too big to overcome, um, what would, what would you say to those students about 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 overcoming adversity to achieve achieve dreams? Yes, yes. I, I first thing first point I like to make is everybody, no matter how talented you are naturally, uh, you all every one of uh, the dancers will face obstacles, difficulties, or uh, hit a break wall moments. I have I have experienced that. Many times. And if you ask Baryshnikov, Nureyev, Margot Fontaine, they will tell you the same. Because, in fact, I got to know Margot Fontaine very well personally. And she has said the same thing. There are so many times she uh, was considering to quit along her uh, careers. So even though we all see the megastar of her glamour, of her career. But, you know, everybody goes through these dark moments. So, but I think... What, what uh, the wide of us, I would say to uh, aspiring dancers is those kind of moments will come. Mm -hmm. Often they come, 
doesn't matter whether you are at the top of your profession, being a principal dancer, an absolute star, or you are a court ballet, or you are still striving to join the company, you are going to meet those challenges. The key thing is you, you never give up. Just keep you going. never give up. You continue to chip away. You continue to work hard on a daily basis. And those uh, the incremental small improvements you make on daily basis eventually is going to make the world of difference for you. Eventually, that break moment, that break of opportunities or break of discoveries is going to happen for you. It's going to certainly the hard work on a daily basis, the little improvements you have uh, made on a on an incremental basis, eventually it's going to become like a flood. It's going to open this incredible opportunity for you. And uh, uh, I can guarantee you that will happen if you don't give up. Lee, that is a wonderful note uh, on which to leave our interview today. Thank you so much for all your wisdom and your knowledge and sharing so much of yourself with our students today. Uh, it's just been a pleasure. I could talk to you for three hours, but I'm not allowed to. Uh, I'd also like to thank our students for listening today. And I hope that you've taken away the the grit and the 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 ability to dream and to share your stories uh, as well as your art forms and your your aspirations. Um, I hope you, you've taken away the ability to do that today. It's It's um, been a wonderful lesson. If you're interested in doing further workshops with us or more author talks or come and see a performance or take a tour, please head to the Sydney Opera House website and you'll find more digital opportunities there. Thank you again, Lee, and goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye. To make sure you don't miss out, subscribe to Artie Farty wherever you get your podcasts from.